Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia, Julius Baer. With me today is Richard Tang, our Head of Research Hong Kong and China strategist. Hello, Richard. Hello, Mark, and hello to our audience. No one would disagree that this has been a very challenging year for Chinese stocks, especially the so-called offshore listings in Hong Kong and New York. And there have been so many new rules on how companies can conduct themselves, and they really go to the heart of how business is done in many sectors. But there's another area of regulatory pressure that also has an impact, not so much on the fundamentals of businesses, but more on their ability to raise capital, foreign capital in particular. And that's what Richard and I are going to talk about today, specifically the risks to variable interest entity structures, otherwise known as VIEs, and the risks to American depository receipts, otherwise known as ADRs for investors. And here I think it might be helpful to give a little background. In China, by the way, not just China, but many countries around the world, the government restricts foreign investment in certain kinds of industries that it deems to be sensitive from a national security perspective. And the rules, just like in other countries, are quite Byzantine. So for example, foreigners can't own more than 50% of a car manufacturer. Any one foreigner can't own more than 25% of an airline company. Some industries can't accept any foreign capital at all. Medicine, tobacco, communications, biotechnology, those are just a few. Indeed, Mark, foreign capital restriction is not unique in China, as you mentioned. There are similar restrictions in other markets too. And Chinese corporates have actually figured out ways to get around these restrictions. But this practice is now facing intense scrutiny from the regulators, and that gets investors a little bit nervous. Richard, I think what you're talking about is the variable interest entity structure, the VIE structure that I just mentioned, right? Exactly, Mark. VIE is a popular business structure Chinese companies use to accommodate the foreign investments in those restricted industries. And this was first adopted by an internet company to list in the US in 2000. So it has a long history. Currently, the VIE structure is most widely used by internet and education companies. But before we go into the detail, let me just take some time to explain how exactly a VIE structure is formed. So hypothetically, let's say we have a company A in the internet sector, and similar to the other internet giants, company A is involved in a lot of businesses. Half of the companies is in games publishing and social media, which do not allow any foreign investments. The other half of the companies is in e-commerce, that does allow foreign investments. So if company A wants to get listed and take foreign capital in the stock market, the first step it has to do is to restructure the company into two parts. The part of business that is restricted to foreign investments will be put into a Chinese VIE company. And then the other part of the business where foreign investments are allowed will be put into a wholly foreign-owned enterprise, or in short, WFOE. Both the Chinese VIE and the WFOE will be established onshore in China. 
The second step is to establish a special purpose vehicle or SPV, this time offshore and very often is in the Cayman Island. This Cayman Island SPV will be the one that is going to be listed in the stock exchange, whether that's in Hong Kong or in the US. And this is what investors will be buying. The listed stock owns the WFOE directly because this part allows foreign investments. But what about the Chinese VIE that doesn't allow foreign ownership? How does the listed stock own it? In fact, the listed stock does not own the Chinese VIE. It controls instead the Chinese VIE through the WFOE on a series of contractual agreements. Oh, Richard, there's so many letters floating around there. It sounds very complicated. And if I could just simplify it, I think what you're saying is that the company we're buying that's listed on the exchange, whether it's in Hong Kong or the United States, actually, that's a shell company. And it doesn't own every part of the underlying business. It owns the part that the Chinese government lets foreign investors own, but it only controls the parts of the business that foreign investors are restricted from owning. Yeah, sure, Mark. Indeed, it's much simpler to describe it this way. By the way, when these stocks announce company results, the numbers include both the part that it directly owns and the part that it controls only. Or simply put, the financial statements consolidate all the underlying businesses, even though you don't own every single part. Well, Richard, I see some risks to this structure. Like first, if the financial statements show it as if you have the entire company and you don't, well, the question is, if the company goes bankrupt, do you have a claim on it? That's one thing. But another thing is, and I guess it's more important for equity investors, the regulatory risk, because ever since it was created over two decades ago, this VIE structure, the Chinese government's always been ambiguous about it. It never officially banned the use of it. It never endorsed it either. And there have been a few times when the VIE structure was scrutinized and share prices reacted negatively. But then the market kind of saw that as nothing more than scrutiny. It forgot about the risk and the shares went up again. This time, Richard, it really feels different. It feels that the focus is far more intense. And in February, when the state administration for market regulations published its new anti-monopoly rules, it explicitly stated that VIEs fall under the new rule scope. And then in July, the state council did that famous crackdown on after-school tuition. In the policy document, there's one line that says foreign capital is prohibited from taking a controlling interest or owning academic after-school tutoring agencies via the VIE structure. So this gets people very worried because they wonder about companies in other sectors where foreign ownership is also prohibited that are using the VIE structure to provide access to foreign investors. So Richard, also in July, the state council published another policy document, this time on securities activities, and it mentioned it was going to tighten up regulations for overseas listings. Well, most of the Chinese companies that have overseas listings, they do it through the VIE structures. So, Richard, what I want to ask is that, do you think there's a chance the regulators are going to crack down on the VIE structure altogether? Sure, Mark. Well, there are a lot of companies using the VIE structures in China, because as long as a company has business in the restricted industry, and it wants to get around the restriction to take foreign capital, it will then have to adopt the VIE structure. It doesn't matter where you list it. It can be the US, it can be Hong Kong, or even mainland China. It doesn't even matter whether you're listed or not, because some private unicorns also set up the VIE structure to take foreign investments. So 
if there is a blanket crackdown on all these VIEs, then all these companies that I mentioned will be adversely affected, and they will have to restructure the company to remove foreign capital. Exactly because the market impact will be too wide and too broad, I tend to believe that the chance of a blanket crackdown is quite low. That being said, I think it is possible that only some VIE companies are targeted by the regulators. If Chinese regulators restrict VIE listings for only a handful of industries, then I think the education sector will be among the most vulnerable because of what you just mentioned. The regulators have made a stance quite explicit in that education policy document. On the other hand, if regulators are restricting VIE listings based on destinations, then I would argue that U.S. listings will face more risks than Hong Kong. And of course, the VIE listings in mainland China will have the least risk. And this may not be well known, but a VIE technology company got itself listed in the Shanghai Star Board just a year ago. I think that means the Chinese regulators are actually fine with VIE listings in the mainland China. Thanks, Richard. So I think it's fair to say new companies are also going to find it more challenging to get listed in the United States with this new stance from the regulators. Agree. And existing companies may speed up coming back to Hong Kong or mainland China for their secondary listings. You know, Richard, there's something else, too, that we should explain to the listeners. When these VIE companies get listed in the U.S., they're usually listed as ADRs, as I mentioned at the beginning, American Depository Receipts. And so there's actually not just one country's regulator to worry about, there's two. And last year, the U.S. Congress passed an act requiring companies to allow inspection of their audit working papers, and not doing so would result in delisting from the U.S. exchanges within three years. Now, the problem for the Chinese companies is they can't comply with that. The Chinese law does not allow them to show their audit working papers to overseas governments. So most Chinese ADRs are probably going to have to delist from the United States by early 2024. And it might be before that. Senate passed a bill in June to shorten the timeline from three to two years. So if it gets through the House of Representatives, we could be looking at an even shorter timeline. But whether it's two or three years, it really does sound that these Chinese ADRs are not going to exist for many more years. Or, Richard, do you think there's a chance that the two countries' regulators could reach some kind of deal? to stop these delistings from happening? Honestly, Mark, I think it will largely depend on how the U.S.-China relations evolve. You probably recall that back in last year, when the U.S.-China tension was at its worst, the Chinese regulators did send multiple proposals to the U.S. trying to solve this problem, but none of them received any favorable response. Now, some investors are hoping that with the recent improvements in the relationship, especially after that meeting in Switzerland, more challenges between the two countries can be resolved, but I just don't know how much weight I should put on to that argument. And as what we discussed, it looks like that the regulations for overseas listings will be tightened up anyway. So I think investors are still better off preparing for the worst. I think you're right, Richard. And I think what we're all realizing is that investors holding these ADRs, these Chinese ADRs, are really exposed to additional risks over and above the Hong Kong counterparts. And the Chinese regulators seem to have a much more stringent stance on the U.S.-listed VIEs than the Hong Kong ones. And 
and the U.S. regulator might force delisting of the Chinese ADRs in two or three years anyway. And by the way, the U.S. has a track record for doing this. It unexpectedly ordered the trading suspension in Chinese ADRs. Back in January, the New York Stock Exchange asked three Chinese telco companies to delist their ADRs, and they were only given two days between the announcement and the actual trading suspension. But the thing is that, Richard, their underlying securities that were listed in Hong Kong, they continued to trade. And what that means, I think, for the dual-listed companies, the ones that are listed both in Hong Kong and New York, that an investor would be wise to convert those New York-listed ADRs into Hong Kong shares. They're not going to sacrifice any potential return because if the ADR goes up, the dual-listed Hong Kong share is going to go up by a similar amount. They're fully fungible. But you take a lot less regulatory risk by owning those Hong Kong shares. I think you're right, Mark. Global institutional investors have actually been doing that, and most likely on similar regulatory concerns too. Just so you know, the free flow ratios of the Hong Kong shares in some dual-listed names have now already surpassed the ADR already. Great. Well, thank you, Richard. That's all we have time for today. And ladies and gentlemen, please contact your Julius Baer Relationship Manager or Investment Advisor for more information or to discuss the suitability of these ideas according to your investment profile. Also, please observe the applicable requirements to your respective jurisdictions. Richard, it's been nice chatting with you today. And on behalf of Richard and all our colleagues at Julius Baer, thank you for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.